Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. Few human enterprises are as complex, dynamic, and unpredictable as war. Armed conflict substitutes the relatively ordered reality of peace with the undeniably chaotic reality of combat. Militaries, by design, seek to make sense of and prepare for that chaos. And as long as there have been organized militaries, there have been military officers, theorists, and observers, like Ardent Dupique or B.H. Little Hart, who sought to predict the fundamental nature of the next war. But as Lieutenant General David Barno and Dr. Nora Bensahel observe in Adaptation Under Fire, How Militaries Change in Wartime, published by Oxford University Press, anticipating the complexities, subtleties, and character of the next war is no simple task. Warfare has a nasty habit of confounding pre-war assumptions and rendering impotent cherished pre-war doctrines, technologies, and leaders. To successfully contend with warfare's radical shifts and rampant unknowns, Barno and Bensahel argue, modern militaries need to be adaptable. They must build an adaptive capacity within their doctrine, cultivate an adaptive approach to technological implementation, and, perhaps most importantly, inculcate an adaptive mindset in their tactical, theater, and institutional leadership. Such adaptive capability, Barno and Bensahel contend, will only grow in importance as the resurgence in great power conflict, the effects of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and the expansion of warfare into space and cyberspace radically reshape the threat environment of the 21st century. Whether or not the modern United States military is adaptable enough to face and overcome these threats remains an open question one that both David and Nora have joined me to discuss today. David, Nora, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Can you give us each give us a, a quick potted bio and maybe tell us how you came to write this book? Sure. I'm a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General. I served for 30 years on active duty. Uh, and my last big job at the end of that time was uh, overall commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And uh, since then, I've uh, Worked in the think tank world, worked at National Defense University, and been in academia the last several years, and uh, today at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies as a visiting professor. And in writing the book, we actually discovered that this would be an awesome topic for a book from uh, deciding to teach a class uh, for, for graduate students on this topic, uh, originally at Georgetown University, now, now at uh, Johns Hopkins. Yeah, my background has been mostly in the think tank world and, and now in academia. I worked at RAND for many years, uh, and then we started working together when we were both at the Center for a New American Security uh, and left there together partly to write this book. Um, as Dave just mentioned, uh, we were talking about teaching uh, a graduate school course, and this topic came up. And as we were putting together the syllabus, uh, we realized that there really wasn't a whole lot that was written on what we thought was an extremely important topic. Uh, this is why teaching and research are, are so uh, intimately linked. Uh, and so we ended up taking the syllabus that we put together for that class and turning it into a book manuscript. Great. Well, the, the book was uh, fantastic. Uh, and throughout the book, you make the quite compelling argument that the modern United States military must make adaptability a core competency if it's going to survive and succeed on the battlefields of the 21st century. How do you define adaptability and why, in your opinion, is it such a significant factor in armed conflict? Well, I'd say that adaptability is, is, uh, 
the ability to look at a situation and recognize that you've got to change in order to ensure that, in our case, uh, your doctrine, your technology, and your leadership is aligned with the actual situation you face on the battlefield. And, and for militaries, we argue that inevitably you, your predictions about the next war are going to be wrong. Uh, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates uh, was fond of saying that the U.S. military has a perfect track record of predicting wars since the end of the Vietnam conflict. Uh, we've never once gotten it right. And, and so that's almost an inevitability for militaries. You have to make plans. You have to decide you know, how you're going to spend your budget. You have to decide what kind of weaponry you're going to buy, how you're going to educate and develop your leaders. Uh, but inevitably, you're going to get that wrong. And adaptability is the key attribute that you must have when you find out in those first hours and days of the next war that you've gotten it wrong to be able to adapt to the situation at hand and shift in the direction of the war you're actually fighting if you're going to have any chance of prevailing. Yeah, that, that idea of how the degree to which you need to shift between the war you predicted and the war you end up fighting in is something that we call uh, the adaptation gap. And as Dave said, that's a problem that has always plagued militaries. You know, you can't predict the future correctly, so you're always going to have to adapt somewhat to uh, whatever the uh, war that you find yourself in looks like. But we think that there are a lot of reasons why that adaptation gap is growing in, in today's world for the United States. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about the type of war and even the adversary that the U.S. will fight in the future. There are new domains of warfare in, in space and cyber that haven't uh, been domains of warfare before. And the incredibly exponentially exponential growth of technology uh, is rapidly changing the character of war, how wars are fought. And so for all those reasons and more, we argue that the United States military, although it uh, is fairly good at adaptability in certain areas, the gap is going to grow even greater. The need to adapt is going to grow even greater. Uh, and that's why uh, we wrote the book with a, a number of policy recommendations at the end to help the U.S. military improve its ability to adapt. Now, militaries, uh, you know, like all bureaucracies, whether rightly or wrongly, have the reputation as being notoriously resistant to change. And I wonder, is there, even despite these incredible new uh, threats on the horizon, is there any benefit to resistance in the military context? You know, is there the potential that you can go too far in the direction of adaptability? Sure, there is. Uh, you know, we talk in the book about uh, exactly as you say, all bureaucracies, all organizations are conservative in that they don't like to change. They exist to create predictable patterns of behavior on an uncertain world. That's you know one of the definitions of what an organization is. But military organizations are even more risk averse than uh, other types of organizations, businesses, or even other government agencies, uh, because lives are on the line at the end of the day. Uh, you know, and the consequences for the nation are existential. So there is a, a hesitancy to change too much, lest you uh, endanger your forces too much so that they're not able to continue fighting or you risk defeat. But in general, we find that the greater problem is that militaries don't adapt enough, that they're so risk averse that they find it difficult to change once you're actually in the middle of a battle and it's becoming clearer the type of war that you're fighting. Our general finding is that most militaries uh, have trouble adapting enough rather than risking adapting too much. 
And I think I'd add to that that it's important to realize that the bureaucracy that the U.S. Department of Defense represents is the largest bureaucracy, the largest organization in the world. It has a budget of three quarters of a trillion dollars every year. And it, it is a massive enterprise that you know, real, literally spans every, virtually every country in the world with bases, with troops, uh, with you know various military services, with training institutions. Uh, it, it is a behemoth. And to, to shift the direction of this particular monstrosity takes an immense amount of energy and persistence and effort. And it's been likened to changing the course of an aircraft carrier going full speed ahead at sea. It, it, you, don't, you don't turn an aircraft carrier on a dime uh, and you can't make 90 degree shifts overnight. And there's, as, as uh, Norris pointed out, there's some excellent reasons for that in terms of the cost of getting it wrong if you make a major change and it ends up being a failure in your next conflict. But in the case of the Pentagon, this is such a large bureaucracy with so much money and so many people it is extraordinarily averse to changes. And, and so the, the, the institutional inertia that it brings to the table is unlike literally any other organization in the world. You identify in the book three areas that kind of make up the foundation for what the massive bureaucracy of the Department of Defense does that are critical to an adaptive capability in wartime, and which you mentioned, David, earlier, doctrine, technology, and leadership. And I'd like to examine each of these in turn, and, and since this is a military history podcast, look at some of the you know natural experiments from the conflicts of the 20th century that you use to illustrate adaptability in these different elements. And I thought we'd start with doctrine. Many of our listeners are current or former military personnel, or they're involved in some way in the military history community. And I imagine that they all possess their own concept of doctrine. And in many cases, that concept is probably synonymous with dogma. But uh, as with all your definitions in the book, you're very precise with how you define doctrine. So what in your definition is military doctrine? I would characterize it as essentially the glue that holds militaries together. We, we, we argue that, that doctrine is specifically should not be dogma. It should be f- flexible and adaptable, and it should be descriptive in a sense in terms of providing advice and insight on what to do, but not prescriptive, you must do this every time you encounter this situation. And so good doctrine helps, you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen prepare for situations that are unexpected and allows them to respond with some, you know, previous thinking and practice and training to the situations they meet on the battlefield. So there, you know, the idea of doctrine being dogma is actually antithetical to what good doctrine should actually be. Uh, but unfortunately, it sometimes becomes a checklist, as some, I'm sure some of our listeners will have uh, experienced in their own time in the military, and that it can also become, uh, you know, to paraphrase, uh, the, the last refuge of unimaginative thinkers. If you can't think of a solution, then you can always point to doctrine as we should be doing it this way, we should be doing it by the book. So it, it is, uh, it is an, a critical element of every military organization, but it, it can be abused as well as used effectively on the battlefield. What then does adaptability and our successful adaptability and doctrine uh, look like? You know, for instance, you bring up the uh, Israelis in, in 1973. Is that an example of a organization successfully pivoting away from a, you know, a, flawed, a flawed guide to action towards something that allows them in real time to achieve victory? 
It is, but it took them a while to do it. Uh, you know, they, they suffered um, catastrophic losses in the beginning of that war. The Egyptian army had a very rigid doctrine, but they executed their operations extremely well. They had prepared for that for a very long time, and they executed it as they prepared for. Where the Israeli army, you know, really had a very distinct advantage, though, was that they realized that they were not fighting in the right way, and they could change how they were approaching the Egyptians very quickly. And when they did that, the Egyptians couldn't react because their way of fighting involved training for set pieces and really uh, not having adaptable leaders at the lower levels who could change their approaches. They required everything to be centralized and coordinated. So the Israelis were able to recover from uh, their failure to imagine the next war correctly. They were able to uh, you know, close the adaptation gap and be able to uh, redo uh, their operations very quickly and ultimately prevailed. We argue that uh, adaptability doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win the war, but it sure gives you a distinct advantage. And the Israeli uh, case in the Yom Kippur War is a terrific example of why that matters so much. Is there a national character or a, or a, or how your per, a perception element here as well in being able to adapt your doctrine in the middle of a conflict? You know, for instance, in the in the Yom Kippur War, the Israelis are perceiving an existential threat, and it seems like those sorts of uh, judgment calls might be more conducive. And if we were involved in the, a future war where the United States military didn't seem uh, didn't feel that it was in a do or die situation where the stakes maybe weren't that the nation itself would collapse, it, would that be prove inimical to adapt to, uh, you know adapting our doctrine in the moment? I don't think that uh, national characteristics of adaptability are the you know the ultimate arbiter of whether your military is adaptable enough. Or not. I think the in the case of the Israelis, you know, there's a good argument to be made that that their their national character, uh, in the way their state was evolved since 1948, made them, you know, what what sometimes used to describe uh, parts of the U.S. military masters of ad hocracy. That the Israelis were were very innovative and flexible, and and were were the opposite in the sense of the Egyptians, who were planners and were meticulous and who were devoted to kind of a set piece. Uh, battlefield doctrine. So I think that that certainly translated into their ability to shift the Israelis to shift their doctrine once they, you know, really encountered a significant defeat in the opening days of the 1973 war. But I don't think you can you can uh, energize uh, flexibility and adaptability out of crisis. I think that you have to bring certain traits into that crisis. You have to recognize that importance before the crisis. By the by, the end of the Yom Kippur War, you know, several weeks in in 1973, the Egyptians were facing an existential threat, and Cairo was being approached by Israeli armored divisions, uh, and that they were not able to become more adaptable overnight because suddenly they faced that kind of a threat. So this requires, and, and one of the reasons we wrote this book is because of the necessity to think about this ahead of time, to instill some of those traits and attributes in your military ahead of time, and really to make adaptability part of your military DNA before you get into a conflict so that you're not trying to put it together under the pressures of, of battles and potential catas catastrophic losses. 
Yeah, and I'll just add the other example, uh, historical example that we look at about uh, doctrine is the uh, French and German armies in 1939 to 1940, right? And the threat for France was existential, but their uh, plans were so rigid, their doctrine was so rigid uh, that they were completely unable to react to the totally different type of warfare that the Germans were conducting uh, from their perspective. I mean, if they had been uh, following Germany more closely, they might have seen what, what, uh, how the German army was fighting. But they were taken so by surprise that despite the fact that the consequences were existential, they still lost in a you know matter of six weeks. So that's why it's really critical to be adaptable in the area of doctrine, uh, precisely because the stakes are existential. Going back to David's point a moment ago, one way that militaries build adaptability into their doctrinal DNA is through exercises during peacetime like war games or other training that seek to simulate the physics that govern combat in a way that stress tests the doctrine. But you also note that the simulations are often antithetical to doctrinal adaptability. Can you speak a little bit about the example you use of the Japanese prior to the Battle of Midway 1942 and its relevance perhaps to the way that we currently stress test U.S. doctrine? Yeah, I can talk briefly to that. It's a, it was a fascinating example to uh, uncover when we were doing the research for the book is that, uh, you know, Admiral Yamamoto, who was the the uh, chief of the Japanese naval forces that were uh, attempting to seize Midway, actually ran a series of war games in the few weeks before the, the Midway operation to test whether his approach to fighting that battle was going to work or not. And the war games actually revealed that have, if the Americans did certain things, the American Navy defending Midway did certain things, that the Japanese would be decisively defeated. Yet that war game was actually skewed in its results because uh, the various people running the war game did not want to offend Yamamoto, and they wanted to convince him that he was right in his planning. And, and so this idea of deference to higher authority, deference to you know, wanting always to come out the best, not being able to examine the flaws and foibles of your plans, that's an incredible vulnerability. And the Japanese basically took a plan that they had found out ahead of time would would fail in the attack on Midway uh, and used it anyway because they convinced themselves that the Admiral was right and we didn't want to give him bad news in terms of his battle plan. That's a catastrophic approach and the results were disastrous the Japanese, they lost four carriers at, at Midway, and it really turned the tide of the Pacific War in the favor of the United States. That That's a risk we, we play today. I mean, one of the other examples we use in the book is uh, well known to some of our, our listeners, I'm sure, the Millennium Challenge 02 exercise run by Joint Forces Command, uh, where in the year 2002, there was a huge exercise to validate a number of U.S. Uh, strategic concepts and operational concepts to deal with a... a uh, battle in the Persian Gulf. And the uh, the opposing force leader was retired Marine Lieutenant General Paul Van Riper. He did such innovative and creative things as the opposing force. He essentially uh, defeated the U.S. Navy with small boats, the initial engagement, and the umpires reset the game and, and prevented him from doing the vast range of different asymmetric things that he had planned. And he quit in disgust over that. And so again, the U.S. in a sense did the same thing as the Japanese did in 1942, thankfully not in the midst of a conflict. And in, in you know, suppressed unfavorable results to get the outcome they wanted. A very, very dangerous thing to do with wargaming. Does that condition still exist today or, or have there been steps to remediate the potential downfalls of these skewed exercises? 
No, there's still a lot of it that goes on today, but it tends to be the higher level exercises when you get together at the service level or the joint level. You know, there there are things that are unrealistic about some of the training that goes on at, you know, the National Training Center, for example. Um, They do very little with uh, degraded communications, for example, uh, because it's so hard for U.S. forces to operate without them that they feel like there's not enough training time if you just take out the communications. However, we should expect that an adversary will try to do that in a future conflict. So it's really important to do that. But, you know, those types of things are different than the kind of suppressing results and and limiting the kind of free play that we're talking about uh, more at the uh, larger exercise level, like Millennium Challenge uh, that that Dave was just talking about. And unfortunately, there is still a lot of that today, Um, you know, putting very unrealistic assumptions that are too generous to U.S. forces about what the environment looks like, uh, because very often these exercises are used to demonstrate the validity of a service concept or of a particular piece of equipment that the services want to have. Um, so it's not quite, uh, you know, at the level of what happened with the the Japanese uh, at Midway, but it's still very concerning for us as, because that's how we learn about how our strengths and our weaknesses. And the less realistic they are, the more scripted they are, uh, the more problematic it is for us to learn the lessons that we need to learn from them. Nora, you just brought up the idea of the services being married to particular technologies. And that's, I think, is a good segue into the the second key component of adaptability you identify in the book, which is technology. And as you know, human agency shapes how that technology is developed, deployed, and configured on the, for the battlefield. And you identify two levels of technological adaptation in the book, one at the, the tactical level and the other at the institutional level. And here you use the development of tanks in the First and Second World Wars as illustrative uh, to illustrate the point. What does the development of French tanks in the First World War and the invention of the Rhino Plow in the Second teach us about technological adaptation in wartime? Yeah, I would jump in on that. I think the uh, French tank development in the First World War, which we profile in the book, was a remarkable success story. It it was done in the midst of the conflict. The concept of a tank didn't even exist before the First World War, as as our our listeners will will well know. And each of the nations that were major belligerents involved, the British, the French, to a much lesser extent, the Germans, were interested in finding a way to breach the barbed wire and trench line obstacles that were limiting, you know, foot mobile infantry and causing the stalemate on the Western Front. The French, from about 1915 forward, began to experiment with Caterpillar tractors to do this. Uh, They developed two very large, heavy tanks that uh, did not prove terribly successful, but they moved them through the system. And at the same time, they were getting them into combat for this first time. They were developing a light tank in parallel which proved immensely successful. And they immediately sidelined the other two tanks, rushed the light tank, the FT-17 Renault, into production. And by the end of the war, had several thousand of these that they, they had produced from a start point of zero, you know, 24 months earlier. Just a remarkable achievement that was done at the institutional level of the French Army, led by some, some pretty uh, innovative mid-grade officers with access to the senior leadership of, of the French military. So, a, a huge success story on the institutional level that, again, we, we have not seen replicated in our other case studies in the United States, either in World War II, where the U.S. had difficulty developing a tank beyond the M4 Sherman tank that it started the war with, uh, despite the fact that it was facing much tougher, 
more capable German tanks by 1943, 44, 45. The U.S. never really got another tank into that fight. And then we, we also looked at that, as you pointed out, at the tactical level, you know, where, where soldiers are doing the innovation. In the case uh, of the U.S., we talk about the rhino plow uh, in, uh, in the subsequent days after the D-Day invasion in 1944. Uh, again, the, in, the, in this particular case, the U.S. Army had gotten across the beaches on D-Day and was, was stalled in the, the bocage or hedgerow country of Normandy. And soldiers came up with innovations to allow tanks to cut through those hedgerows and attack the Germans who were using them as natural defensive positions. Uh, and in a matter of literally several weeks, uh, they went from finding a successful prototype that they could put on an M4 Sherman tank to getting it in front of General Omar Bradley, the first army commander, to then rushing it into production with field production capabilities so that they could use it for the Operation Cobra break out of the hedgerow country in late July 1944, which was a huge success. So this was a this was a, a great example of of, uh, of adaptation done at the tactical level by soldiers in the field to fix an immediate problem, and and it had the support again of the leadership out there. So two different examples, but both very interesting in thinking about how how technology must be adapted to deal with the exigencies you actually find when you go to war. Is there a, a parallel here with the development and deployment of, like, for instance, the MRAP system in the, the more recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? There absolutely is. And we make that parallel very clear in uh, the case of uh, the development of, of uh, tank armor in at, towards uh, the end of World War II in the United States. You know, soldiers in the field desperately tried to improve their armor against what were increasingly capable German tanks that could pierce their sides uh, and, and other parts as well. Uh, and they were taking very heavy losses because of that. Soldiers on the front lines did all sorts of things like putting sand bags uh, in them to try to build some more protection and, and trying to do other things. But none of those were very successful because not because they weren't adaptable, but because the problem simply couldn't be solved at the tactical level. It was a fundamental problem with the equipment. Um, and we tell the story in the book about you know the reasons why the army as an institution had failed to provide those frontline soldiers with the kind of tanks that could withstand the German uh, improvements. We draw a direct parallel with that and what you uh, pointed out happened with the MRAPs in the Iraq war in particular. Um, soldiers in the field did a terrific job when improvised explosive devices were starting to target them in 2003 in Iraq of trying to do things that would improve their protection, including putting sandbags uh, in their tanks, uh, in their uh, vehicles, excuse me, and uh, trying to... Uh, weld on uh, metal fragments that they found, uh, that they scavenged basically from their local environments, trying to weld those onto uh, their vehicles. They called that uh, hillbilly armor. That became the term that they uh, used to refer to it, which was a reference to uh, the jalopy in the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, if anybody remembers uh, the opening montage of that TV show. Uh, but again, despite the incredible adaptability uh, and of the solutions that were trying to be developed in the field and were actually quite well uh, distributed across units uh, that were deployed, the problem just couldn't be solved uh, in Iraq. It was a problem with the vehicle. And we tell in the book the very tragic story about the U.S. military's refusal to procure 
MRAPs, largely because both the Army and the Marine Corps didn't want to spend money on it. They uh, were afraid that that would pull away from their preferred vehicle replacement program, which at that time was the uh, Joint Light tactical vehicle that was still in development um, and, you know, consistently refused to provide MRAPs in large numbers for uh, soldiers and Marines who were dying as a result of uh, the insufficient protection of their vehicles. The only reason why MRAPs eventually got sent to the theater in great numbers at all was because Secretary Gates himself, then as the Secretary of Defense, when he found out about this, shockingly from a newspaper article, decided that this was a top priority and overruled all of the service chiefs and his other military advisors to say, we are going to build these in large numbers and we are going to deploy them to the field. It stands as one of the tragic failures of adaptability uh, for the United States in the recent wars that certainly caused the lives of U.S. personnel as a result. One thing that you highlighted there, Nora, is the friction that seems to occur quite frequently between developing technologies for use in the future war and the short time horizons imposed upon technological development and deployment in the current war. And it seems that the effects of the fourth industrial revolution, which you highlight throughout the book, are only going to exacerbate this natural friction. Are there any methods or strategies the U.S. military can employ to mitigate this tension between long-term planning and short-term need? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a really important one. Um, Looking at that question, you have to start with the fact that the U.S. military acquisition system is is essentially broken, and you know, getting. new cutting edge technologies into the military capabilities is is extremely difficult with the acquisition process that we currently have, which is bureaucratic, which takes years and years for systems to get developed. So that is certainly a problem. But when we look at the problem with getting MRAPs, for example, into theater, that wasn't fundamentally about our acquisition process, or at least it wasn't the primary problem. The primary problem was leaders who didn't want to invest in that technology. So there are issues other than just the acquisition system, uh, which make it difficult to get these things fielded. Um, It was the resistance of the service leaders to it that really slowed it down. And so I think although the acquisition system is definitely a major problem for U.S. adaptability as we, uh, you know, continue to integrate the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution, it's not the only problem. There's also, uh, you know, constraints that are imposed by leaders and their preferences about what systems the the, uh, military should be fielding as well. Yeah, I would add to that. I think that there there also has to be a recognition that you have to fight the war you're in, not the war that you wanted to fight. And that the quicker you realize that, the better off you will be, the more likely you will be to prevail, the more capabilities you're going to get in the hands of your troops, and the quicker you'll be to shift away from weaponry and systems, technology that doesn't work, into quickly investing in what you have to adjust to be successful in the conflict you're in. And, and again, in, with the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, both uh, the U.S. military, and I saw this myself when I went back to the Pentagon after leaving command in Afghanistan and spent a year on the Army staff in the Pentagon, and the Army was really looking over the horizon to the next war. It was looking to how to, you know, prepare for that future conflict there somewhere out in, at that time, 2020, let's say, and that was not the war in Iraq or Afghanistan, and so there was a tension between where the service 
long-term programs were aimed and the effectiveness of those programs to fight the war that the army was actually in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and in many cases, in the time I was there in 2005, 2006, the long-range programs were winning out. The, you know, we, we profile another one of these in our books, uh, our book, the D6A program, the Distributed Common Ground Sensor Army, big mouthful of words there, which was the Army's intelligence program of record and how abjectly badly it was performing in Afghanistan to do things that it was not really designed to do, which was figure out patterns from improvised explosive devices to, you know, profile where insurgents were operating to do all the irregular warfare type of requirements that were essential in that type of war. Well, D6A was not designed to do that in any way, shape, or form, and it was incredibly cumbersome for operators to use. There was a commercial software available made by Palantir that was extraordinarily effective. It was used by special operators and by the Marines, and the Army leadership fought Palantir's system tooth and nail, even though their soldiers were clamoring for it in the field. And in most cases, you know, even the division commanders, brigade commanders were demanding it and, and, and had to beat down the army bureaucracy to get any of these systems out into the war in Afghanistan. Really a, a, a tragic story in and of itself. But again, reflective of this idea is you've got to fight the war you're in. You can't simply put all your investment chips on some future war when you're actually, you know, losing soldiers and Marines on a day-to-day basis in the war you're fighting. That example also highlights another argument that you make in the book, which is that of the three major elements you identify, leadership is paramount. And one thing that intrigued me while I was reading the book was the definition of leadership you put forth, which encompasses this idea that leadership is a process. And I imagine most conceive of leadership as an innate quality, something that training can reinforce and bring out but that it's not necessarily evolutionary. Uh, And I wanted to discuss one of the examples of successful adaptation at the theater command level that you use in the book. And uh, Nora warned me off air, David, that uh, you share my enthusiasm for William Slim. So uh, (laughs) I'll try and keep it brief. Um, But General Sir William Slim in Burma during the Second World War, because he seems to exemplify this definition of leadership as a process and the significance of that process to adaptation and command. Is that how you view him? Well, I could, I could wax eloquently for a long time on uh, Bill Slam, and so I will try and, uh, and not uh, burden our uh, listeners with too much of that. But, but I think he, he was a spectacular example of adaptive leadership at the theater level. In, in uh, his memoirs, uh, Defeat into Victory, uh, probably the best uh, memoir by a uh, senior serving general or admiral in the Second World War. So I commend those to readers as well. I have a marked up copy sitting on my bookshelf at home mm. that I've had for you know 25 or 30 years, I'd say. But, but he actually went from a very unconventional background for the war he was going to be put in. He had fought uh, in the desert uh, in Syria at the beginning of the, first, of the Second World War. And uh, so he and his division was trained for desert warfare. He was placed then into uh, the war in the very early days, 1941, in Burma, uh, where the Japanese were attacking and driving the British forces out. And he had to fight his way through a defeat where his his um, force in Burma was decisively defeated by the Japanese because they were ill-trained, ill-suited for the conflict they were in. So he took that, went back to India, rebuilt the force, was promoted to a higher level, uh, and eventually built an army in the ensuing months that he could put on the offensive. 
later in 1942 and 1943 and 44 into Burma and beat the same Japanese with a army that was at the end of the supply chain that got the least really resources of any army in the Second World War that was in in a forgotten theater. And his army, the 14th Army, is called the Forgotten Army. Uh, but he was able to you know do some really remarkably creative things to marshal the resources he had to retrain his forces to get out and interact with his soldiers and convey to them the importance of the mission they were on and really rebuild a force that could beat a Japanese army that was probably superior in its capabilities and its strength and its experience to his own under some really difficult you know jungle conditions back in in the uh, the uh, eastern part of India and then into Burma and finally you know, win that war out decisively by late 1944. So really a remarkable case of uh, adaptive leadership at the theater level from, from someone who had very little to work with relative to his peers you know, in other parts of the Pacific or in the European theater. Diversity also seemed to really play a part in his ability to turn the Indian Army around uh, in 19, between nineteen forty and 45. Um, you know, he served in Mesopotamia and Ethiopia and North Africa, Mesopotamia in the First World War. And uh, as you noted to David, that he also went and spent some time among his troops and tried to inculcate the importance of their mission, but also just probably also getting some feedback at that level too. Is this diversity of experience and perspective key to creating a, a adaptable leadership? I think it, it certainly helped him. And he, again, came from a background where, by all rights, all the experiences he had had in wartime in the First World War and in the early days of the Second World War would not have been a good fit for the theater that he was going to, which was dominated by jungle warfare and in very rugged mountainous terrain in, uh, again, eastern India and Burma. But I think it, it also helped. He, he, in his, he was an officer of the Indian Army, as you point out. So his troops were not British Army regulars uh, that were of the same cultural background as his. He had a wide diversity of troops that he was used to operating with, and the Army he fought with in Burma uh, was very much a very diverse force. He actually learned elements of several different languages so he could go down when he talked to troops that were from, you know, from the Indian frontier or from, you know, Gurkha forces or other elements. He could actually talk a little bit in their language to them uh, to kind of break the ice when he was down, you know, seeing how they were doing, making sure that their training program was on track and, and listening to them and telling them about the importance of their mission. So I think that actually helped him a great deal in, in his ability to get the entire force focused on the mission. And, and one of the other things he did, which I thought was unique uh, and farsighted, is that he recognized that every soldier in his army had an important role to play, whether they were a mail clerk on the supplier line somewhere, you know, 200 miles behind the front, or they were you know, an ammunition carrier, or they were part of a medical evacuation chain, uh, whatever their job was, it was critical to the success of the, the soldiers at the front line. And he treated them all equally in that respect. Uh, and he was particularly, I think, tough on his own headquarters. One of the things he was famous for is if any of the units in the 14th Army went on half rations because they did not have enough resupply to feed their soldiers at the front line, his headquarters went on half rations. That, that word made its way around the front pretty quickly. And it also helped accelerate those supply lines, getting up to the troops that needed them rapidly as well. So very, very farsighted leader, I thought. Now, that diversity seems to stand in contrast to the situation the U.S. military currently finds itself in, in that, as you note in the book, almost all of the senior military leadership and even many of the down at the tactical level have 
very deep experience of actual combat and actual warfare, but it's a relatively homogeneous experience. Does that present a significant hurdle to any success in a future conflict? You know, does it impede the ability to adapt in the event that we, you know, we're engaged in a in a great power conflict or even in a different type of gray zone conflict, perhaps, you know, with a significant cyber element to it? It absolutely does hinder our ability to adapt to unforeseen circumstances when the senior leadership has a very similar set of experiences, not just from the recent wars, although that is part of it, um, but because they've all had similar career trajectories in their services. You don't get promoted to be a general or, in the case of the Navy, an admiral, unless you've cleared certain very specific uh, marks of command uh, going to ever higher levels. Uh, certain types of uh, positions are rewarded more than others, and that creates an incredible similarity among uh, the service's most senior leaders. Traditional markers of diversity like uh, race, gender, ethnicity are important to that, but the most important diversity characteristic here is diversity of thought. Uh, some of that comes from lived experience, uh, but some of it also comes from the people that you're exposed to, the people that you're around. And so one of the things that we talk about a lot in our recommendations is uh, the challenges and the insufficiency, really, I should say, of professional military education at the senior levels. When uh, upwardly promotable lieutenant colonels and colonels attend senior service college, they're surrounded by people who may look different, again, in terms of gender, race, and so on, uh, but who have very, very similar experiences uh, in terms of their professional lives, the types of positions they've held, and, and so on. Um, you know, the, at the uh, professional military education institutions, uh, you know, diversity is usually seen by having people from a different service or even international people in the classroom. And of course, that does help to a certain extent. But they're all military people who have served in the same types of uh, situations, and they tend to think in a very similar way. One of the strongest recommendations we have in the book is that uh, uh, aspiring flag officers and general officers should be required to attend, or more of them should attend, uh, civilian graduate programs in addition to their professional military education, because that's really where you get exposed to a true diversity of ideas that demand of you to think, <clears throat> excuse me, that require you to think in new and creative ways, being exposed to ideas that you've never thought of before. We see this all the time in our classrooms uh, now at, at, at Johns Hopkins SICE, uh, but where, I, where we've taught before, uh, that the folks with military experience, particularly mid-career officers who come into our classroom, uh, are learning from the very diverse viewpoints of uh, students who are just out of college, who have never been in the military, don't see the world in a military way, and ask what are to the military folks some very profound first-order questions uh, that they need to think about and answer. We think that's absolutely essential in order to prepare the senior leaders of tomorrow for the type of creative thinking, the type of innovative thinking, uh, and really approaching things in a new way uh, that will be required of them in order to adapt under very difficult circumstances. I would, I would build on that a bit and go back to the comment you made about the pros and cons of having a force that's really only had one type of conflict 
in its experience kit bag for the last 20 years, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in, in two different ways, you know, I, I certainly would absolutely agree with everything that, that uh, Nora has suggested. We made some very strong points on how to diversify this experience. But I, I am worried about uh, two aspects in particular of what the experience the military has had for the last 20 years will mean about thinking about wars of the future. First of all, there, there are two services, you know, arguably three if we include the Space Force, but the Navy and the Air Force and now the Space Force have fought these wars and essentially have fought them without any casualties at all. And so they have had an experience where in their particular domain of warfare, they've been the dominant force. The adversary has had no air force, has had no Navy, has had no ability to strike our air force or Navy. And so there's the, you know, the, the idea of combat in those two services, uh, both from the air and from the sea, is, is not like what combat in a future major power conflict would look like in any way, shape, or form. And so the idea that these, these wars somehow represent an experience that would be useful to them in the future is suspect to me. The, the second area that I think is a, is a concern is for all the forces that have, that have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan is that there has been really a U.S. overmatch of the adversary in almost all the areas we would normally count as critical components of warfare. That doesn't mean that we've won outright clearly because the adversary has been extremely adaptive in and of himself, both in Iraq and the Taliban and Afghanistan. But the U.S. military has operated with unconstrained logistics without any disruption of its command and control capabilities, uh, without any concerns about the homeland and any strikes back here with, with the lines of communications and supplies that run all the way back to the United States. And essentially has had technological overmatch, hasn't had to deal with any technology that have been particularly disruptive and, and decisive in, in relative to our own, with the possible exception of roadside bombs or IEDs. So this is a, a domain where, in all the conventional measurements of military power, the U.S. has dominated, still hasn't won, still hasn't prevailed. Uh, however, the, the norms that we would see taking all of these factors into a future major power conflict would be completely different. And, and I think there's th- those baked-in assumptions, those baked-in uh, beliefs and how war is going to unfold, drawing upon your own experience, are going to be very powerful. And this generation is going to have those for the next 20 years or more. You also brought up the, you brought up Space Force there. And, and uh, Nora was also talking about the need for diversity in, in thought, maybe reaching beyond the insular community of the U.S. military. And it seems like the two emergent domains, space and cyberspace, are areas where the military could greatly benefit from the expertise of the civilian realm, who've been perhaps more intimately involved in these domains. But it also seems too like it's that they are both domains that will, as you pointed out, David, really demonstrate that the technological overmatch of the past is not a guarantee in the future. You know, like it seems like in the past 15 years, especially in the cyber domain, you know, we had real-time regional gateway, which was kind of you embedding a digital capability right in the field. And now Army Future Command is seems to be moving towards an even greater integra- integration at the lowest tactical formation level. Is greater reliance on these technologies conducive or inimical to adaptation on the future battlefield? Should we be steering away from our reliance on them? I think we're going to inevitably be relying on them, and then things are going to be interwoven into how we fight. I think that that's the American way of war. The, the American way of war has always been 
technology centric and we, we're not going to suddenly divorce ourselves from that and become, you know, analog and, you know, go back to grease pencils and maps with acetate on them. We, we have to have those capabilities and backup and we have to make sure our forces are trained to operate without these technological marvels to assist them in doing command and control and battlefield tracking and communications. But we, we simply can't go back into that environment. We can't back out of the technology aspect of it. But we do have to make sure the technology is resilient enough and can gracefully degrade if it's attacked so that we don't go from switch all on to switch all off you know, in an instant and have no ability to operate whatsoever. That, that's, a, I think, a flaw in terms of how we acquire a number of systems out there. I'd also say in the, uh, in the domain of both cyber and space, that we probably don't appreciate the degree to which we are vulnerable to disruption attacks, um, really in, in some ways defeat in those domains because we've never fought in those domains before. We haven't had a war that's actually uh, unfolded you know, when we've had active capabilities in space, active capabilities, now really ubiquitously vulnerable capabilities and reliant capabilities on cyber. This This most recent attack we're seeing here uh, in in early December, the solar winds, you know, penetration of a wide range of U.S. government systems. That's just what we've seen. I mean, we're, we're going to deal with this on a, a extensive level, I think, in our military in a future conflict. And those seeds are already planted fundamentally inside of our network. So I, I think we're going to have to really find ways to continue to rely on this technology, but ensure it's resilient, that it can degrade gracefully. We have plenty of backups to it, and then our forces can operate you know, without total reliance upon that and not be totally, you know, disrupted, uh, if not, you know, defeated, if that is not available out there. I think that any adversary we're going to fight in the future is going to target that. We are more vulnerable probably than any military in the world to that kind of disruption. And just to tie that back to an earlier point of conversation, you know, we were talking about uh, unrealistic exercises and training. This is uh, one of the key areas where we think the U.S. military needs to be focusing more of its attention. What do you do when those systems go down temporarily or permanently? Uh, and again, that often falls in the too hard category uh, for especially for larger military exercises, uh, because, you know, there's a sense that, well, if you just shut down everything, you don't get the training value to the, the soldiers. They don't learn how to use equipment and, and uh, so on. Um, and while that's true to a certain extent, it, it uh, reveals a perhaps more fundamental problem, which is if it, if it is in the too hard category, if it's such a vulnerability, you need to be doubling down on um, how you would address that since it's so clear that that will be a major vulnerability for U.S. forces in the future. That brings me to two two final questions. The first one is we talked to, we touched a little bit on the, the resurgence of great power competition that we see boiling up everywhere, perhaps in in a way that's similar to the pre-First World War geopolitical environment. But I was wondering what you thought about the utility of maintaining a paradigm that neatly separates warfare into these two distinct types, you know, great power warfare and warfare conducted by non-state actors in a modern environment where, as you've both pointed out, state any great power that we might be engaged with in the future is going to use the distributed tactics commonly employed by non-state entities. And if we adhere to that distinction, does that also impede our ability to adapt or or think adaptively in the in any future conflict? 
I would say that I think one of the great risks is a, is a way that the great power conflict, the resurgence of great power conflicts is, is the priority for the U.S. military, uh, which we've seen really come out of the national defense strategy here in, in 2018. That plays to what the U.S. military really would prefer to do in, in the big, you know, I would call iron on iron, major conflicts, major conventional war, military forces versus military forces. Uh, navies versus navies, air forces versus air forces, missile defense, all, all these things play to what the U.S. military really wants to do, prefers to do, ha- is in heavily invested in in terms of its weaponry and only represents one part of that war. And I, I think to your point about, you know, the, the tactics used by gray zone, or I'm sorry, by non-state actors to, today and in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, those are going to be used and are being used today by state actors. And we are ill prepared in the U.S. military to deal with those. And I think we, we are probably misinvesting our resources if we continue to pour more and more resources into upping our conventional war fighting capabilities while failing to realize and address the threat that our adversaries are going to deliver through these really advanced forms of gray zone competition in leading up to conflict. That the, that the actual iron on iron fight is probably the least desirable outcome for our adversaries. And that if you know our adversaries in Russia or China or elsewhere can achieve their objectives you know, without going into a full up you know conventional war with the United States, they will certainly attempt to do that. And we're we're ill prepared to fight and prevail on that battlefield. And, and that's the battlefield that does not look like conventional war. So I, I'm, I'm very concerned about that going forward. And even taking that one step further, you know, the, the wars of iron, as Dave has called them, uh, by definition for the United States, they take away, they, they take place far away from our shores. They are overseas operations. We've always had the United States as a sanctuary territory. Uh, and we've been very lucky to have two oceans protecting our physical geography. But that's not going to be the case anymore because cyber offers a way to reach out and touch the U.S. homeland, uh, which completely bypasses our military forces and doesn't require the physical crossing of, of oceans to get to us. So even if you're talking about a great power conflict uh, beyond the elements of hybrid warfare that we'll see on the battlefield, we have to assume that a major pure adversary is going to be able to create effects in the U.S. homeland, even if they're not kinetic, that will shape the way that we flow our forces to deploy overseas. And that's something that I don't think has gotten a great deal of attention. Again, it it often falls in that too hard category. Um, But, you know, most of U.S. logistics and mobilization capacity is pretty easy for our adversaries to figure out. A lot of it relies on commercial systems that are not protected by DOD networks uh, and that are almost certainly able to be infiltrated by a determined adversary. So even if we're not talking about hybrid warfare, even just in the way that we approach a more conventional fight, there are going to be effects in the homeland that we need to be considering that we've never had to consider before because geography, physical geography, always offered a layer of protection that uh, no longer exists now with the advent of cyber. You argue in the introduction that uh, military's culture is expressed through its doctrine, its technology, and its leadership and the, the interplay between these elements. And in military history in the last 40 years, there's definitely been a cultural turn trying to examine military history through that cultural lens. Are there any historical examples, maybe either from the book or that um, you know you, you maybe didn't include, that 
provide either a, a reference point or a potential model for what the adaptive culture of the U.S. military should be today? Well, we we decided to focus on uh, doctrine, technology, and leadership again, as Dave said earlier, because we think those are the areas in which militaries have to be adaptable in order to uh, adjust on the battlefield. We didn't get into the debate about whether countries have a larger strategic culture, which there is a pretty big literature on. Um, that may be part of what you're, you're referring to, because we didn't find it that helpful at trying to analyze at the really at the operational level how countries respond on the battlefield to uh, the situations that they face. And that's why we chose to look at how, uh, you know, the cultures of, of countries express themselves through these three uh, different dynamics. But I think it's pretty clear when you look at the case studies in the book, and even if you just look back at the recent wars, you can see how uh, that culture, organizational preferences and uh, individual leaders, how that affects how they think about things. You know, the, we were talking earlier about how in the area of technology during the recent wars, the services were looking towards the future and preferring their future systems over the kinds of uh, things that uh, soldiers in the field needed. That's an expression of the culture of those institutions, of how senior leaders in them view their roles and responsibilities. Um, and that very much does affect uh, how decisions are made. Again, you, you pointed this out, Scott, that the reason why we identify leadership as perhaps the most important of all of those three factors is because at the end of the day, in the other areas, in the areas of doctrine and technology, it is still people, it is still leaders who make important decisions about that. And, and that's why we highlight uh, the role of leadership as so vital uh, to adaptability in wartime. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that culture is really a, a, a confluence of these three factors uh, as we examine it in various militaries. We, we can, you know, your leadership grows out of uh, your selection process, which reflects your culture and effect. Your doctrine very much is a reflection of your culture. And I think if you look at the doctrine section of our book, the countries that, that had successful doctrine that was very adaptable, that reflects you know leadership that's adaptable, it reflects having the ability to adjust their technology. So these things all you know correlate with each other, weave together uh, out there in the examination. And, you know, but I think they're important to take in aggregate. They're, they're always going to be individual exceptions. One of the things I think that we've, we, uh, I'm, I'm certainly a, a believer in is that the selection of leaders at critical times and critical points uh, in war make an a immense outsized difference in terms of how that conflict unfolds. And if you look at some of the either positive or negative cases, you know, the choice of William Slim to lead in Burma uh, in the aftermath of the Japanese attack there uh, in 1941-42 and then on for the rest of the war versus someone else made a huge difference. The choice of William Westmoreland to lead in Vietnam from 1964 to 1968 for the United States made an immense difference. And again, so th all these factors play together. We, we actually do think that the, the, the end result of all that is that your culture is kind of what the factors, you know, that have aggregated together and how they reflect in your military come out. David, Nora, you've been incredibly generous with your time today. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks again for having us. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Scott. Terrific, terrific discussion. Thank you very much. And to all our listeners, I'm Scott Lipkowitz. On behalf of New Books in Military History, thanks for tuning in.